0: My brothers and sisters, throughout the history of the world, the Lord has been concerned for the eternal welfare of the souls of His children. Over the past 50 years, as we have heard, inspired leaders have taught welfare principles to help us plan ahead for difficult times that may come in our lives. The Church has grown and has now spread over many countries throughout the world. But the strength of the Church and the Lord's real storehouse is in the homes and hearts of his people. A few months ago, after returning home from an assignment abroad, I became very ill with an amoebic disorder. With pain, dehydration, fever, and total innervation, an important welfare lesson was learned, that one can suddenly be thrust into a condition of intense need. Experiences such as this help us to become more aware of the needs of others and to realize that many people throughout the world live with these problems every day. During the past few months, I've read and pondered the scriptures, as well as the discourses of welfare given at general conferences over 50 years. I might add, President Romney gave much the same talk for 40 of those years. And I just want you to know how much he helps the bishopric, the First Presidency, and the Quorum of the Twelve stay on course as we review his words. The great teachings of these priesthood welfare principles by many prophets who have gone before in this and other dispensations and by living prophets here today give us direction to conduct our lives, welfare principles that are essential to our happiness and welfare development and spiritual development. I'd like to talk of seven that I've summarized over 50 years of welfare principles taught. First, the welfare principle is an integral part of the plan of salvation. Some have become confused about what welfare really means. Some approaches to welfare in the world foster idleness, give subsidies with no labor required, create a burden of debt, and promote greediness an appetite for things of this world rather than the riches of eternity. Too often, rich and poor alike shut out their hearts to the divine attributes of love and compassion. The rich languish in their abundance and justify turning the poor away as welfare cases. The poor are likewise entrapped, making them dependent on others in a system destined to trample initiative, undermine family responsibility, foster divisiveness, and erect barriers to equity, opportunity, and fellowship. The Lord rejects such welfare plans. His plan meets the needs of all, however abundant or modest their circumstances, His purpose is to provide for our eternal welfare. And the prime duty of help to the poor in body and spirit is not solely to bring temporal relief to their needs, but salvation to their souls. We are also given a warning that the Lord in His great infinite goodness doth bless and prosper those who put their trust in Him, Helaman chapter 12, verse 1. However it is the disposition of men, it goes on to say, that when all things are done for them, they harden their hearts and do forget the Lord their God and do trample their feet on the Holy One, yea, and this because of their ease and their exceedingly great prosperity. And thus we see, again in Helaman 12:2 and 3, it says, and thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten His people with many afflictions, they will not remember Him. It's a sobering thought to think that the purpose of having opposition in all things, trials and tribulations in our lives, and a concern for the needy, is to humble us and to draw us closer to the Lord and nearer to perfection. Second, the scriptures provide spiritual framework for the welfare plan. Turn to the Book of Mormon Index and glance at the references listed under the word welfare. You will see, and the Spirit will testify, that the Lord's welfare plan focuses first and foremost on the eternal well-being of his children. These scriptures indicate that Nephi seeks his brother's eternal welfare and labored all his days for his people's welfare. Jacob desirous for the welfare of his people's souls and is weighted down with the anxiety for the welfare of the souls of the Nephites. In In turn, it says the Nephites are filled with anguish for the welfare of the souls of the Lamanites. And then there's a concluding reference which says, "...the Church meets oft to speak one with another concerning the welfare of souls." Take special note of the repeated reference to the welfare of souls. This implies that there is much more than just food, clothing, and shelter for temporal needs. Third, the welfare plan builds the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It shares this position in common with other gospel activities, Temporal challenges humble us, and we become and have spiritual experiences and opportunities. Temporal challenges bring us to our knees in prayer, seeking heavenly guidance and assistance from the Lord, as well as from our brothers and sisters. As we persist in putting welfare principles to work, adding our strengths and resources to those possessed by others, we can overcome our adversities. Overcoming temporal obstacles demonstrates to us that nothing is too hard for the Lord, and our faith and our Savior, Jesus Christ, is confirmed. Fourth, by living welfare principles, we can develop individual self-reliance. The welfare program requires that we develop self-reliance and provident living. Provident living requires us to develop proper attitudes, a willingness to forego luxuries, to avoid excess, and fully use what we have, learning to live within our means. Unrestricted by programs and projects, bricks, and mortar, the Lord's real storehouse is indeed in the homes and hearts of His people. If the members of the Church follow the counsel to become self-reliant, they represent an immense pool of resources, knowledge, skills, and charity available to help one another. This storehouse, the Lord has said, is for the poor of my people to advance the cause which ye have espoused to the salvation of man and to the glory of your Father who is in heaven. Doctrine and Covenants 78, verses 3 and 4. The fifth point, the welfare plan builds love and compassion for our fellow men. As we live the principles of welfare, love and compassion will abound in our homes, in our worship, and in our service to others. Gone will be the lamentable practices of intemperance and abuse to wives and children. Abused children become abusive parents. It's everybody's responsibility to see that this cycle of abuse is stopped. It is hypocritical to talk of compassion to others while we are rude and abusive within our own families. Let us put our homes in order, seeing that the spiritual and emotional needs of our families are met. Then no one will escape our empathy and concern, be they family, rich or poor, old or young, neighbors or strangers within our reach. There are many Christian acts of charity in our community that have come to my attention. There are many guardian angels in our communities who care for the transients with a hot meal and a warm place to sleep for an evening. There are many who take custody of orphans and homeless to share their quiet love and compassion. An element says if saints turn away the needy, they are as hypocrites who deny the faith. For example, I know a family who once a month holds a provident living family council. With mother and father, the children determine how $25 out of their budget, in addition to their tithes and offerings, will be distributed to an individual in need. Last month, $25 went to a young child in the primary's children's hospital. This is one way to teach compassion to children, especially as they visit the sick child in the hospital. By the way, the children want to save more money to give away to the needy in next month's budget. Fortunately, this family does other charitable acts, They do not give money and feel that they have done their compassionate service. One family made room in their small home for a neighbor who had a fire and and the home was being repaired. They were giving not what was was convenient for them, but rather what was needed by the neighbor. Another family invited their 18-year-old son's closest friend, who needed a home to stay with them for a year while he prepared for a mission. By their providing an environment of emotional support and spiritual example, He was able to earn his own money for his mission. On his mission, he grew to maturity, self-esteem, and confidence. Since his mission, with self-reliance, he has gone forward to strengthen others. Financial need is an important part of welfare. But there are other equally important elements that, through giving love and compassion, build individual self-reliance emotionally and physically to be useful and productive, to be a help. The welfare plan sanctifies both the giver and the receiver. We are both givers and receivers. President Marion G. Romney has said there is an interdependence between those who have and those who have not. The process of giving exalts the poor and humbles the rich. In that process, both are sanctified. No one is exempt from giving to the impoverished. The counsel is, and again I say unto the poor, I mean all ye who deny the beggar because ye have not. I would that you would say in your hearts, I give not because I have not. But if I had, I would give." Mosiah 4, verse 24. No one is exempt from receiving. To the rich the reality is, for behold, are we we not all beggars? Do we not all depend upon the same being, even God, calling on his name and begging for a remission of your sins? Again, that prophet Mosiah, chapter 4. We beg through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ where all men were given immortality and eternal life if they earn it. The last point the welfare plan builds is Zion people. Zion is characterized in Scripture as a city which the people were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness, and there were no poor among them. Zion is every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. Doctrine and Covenants, section 82. This promise Zion always seems to be a little bit beyond our reach. We need to understand that as much virtue can be gained in progressing toward Zion as in dwelling there, it is a process as well as a destination. We approach or withdraw from Zion through the manner in which we conduct our daily dealings, how we live within our families, Pay an honest tithe and generous fast offering. Seize opportunities to serve and do so diligently. Many are perfected upon the road to Zion, who will never see the city in mortality. So, my brothers and sisters, when we think of welfare, let us think of the plan revealed by our Lord for the eternal welfare of our souls. It is a plan to build faith, love, compassion, self-reliance, and unity to be one. When adapted to local needs throughout the world by vigorous priesthood leaders, the plan sanctifies both givers and receivers and prepares a Zion people. With these basic welfare principles today, we are being asked to teach and practice the doctrine of work, self-reliance, provident living, giving and caring for the poor, to increase our generous fast-offering donations to help those in need, to increase our compassionate service, involving the family in charitable acts of service to one another and to our neighbors. I bear you my testimony that we live in a dispensation of time where there have been ministering angels. Angel Moroni was a heavenly messenger, essential to the restoration of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith. But Joseph F. Smith taught us that it is contrary to the law of God for the heavens to be opened and messengers to come to do anything for man that man can do for himself that you and I might realize that we have the power and responsibility to help those in need as ministering angels for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be loved because we love, be consoled because we are compassionate, be forgiven because we've demonstrated the capacity to forgive, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: I have a duty to speak to you. (laughs) Beyond that, it's a great privilege and a tremendous opportunity, and I seek the direction of the Holy Spirit. I have been so appreciative of this return missionary chorus who have sung to us this night. I have heard them and their kind sing all across this world. I wish that there were time for them to sing to us, Ye elders of Israel, come join now with me. They could do it in English, English, and American English, and Australian English, and New Zealand English and French and German and Irish and Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, what have you, Japanese, Korean, Mandarin, Cantonese, whatever. Thank you, brethren, for the music with which you have blessed us. What Brother has said and the presence of this chorus have set a theme for me. I spoke with a young man the other evening who was deeply troubled over the question as to whether he should go on a mission. He outlined a program of education which would be tremendously challenging. He spoke of his love for a beautiful girl and of a feeling that he could not leave her. He spoke of financial problems which would entail sacrifice. I told him that I could understand his feelings. I told him his concerns were similar to those of many others, including some I had experienced in my own life. At his age, I was in the university. It was the time of the worst economic depression in the history of the world. Unemployment in this area was about 35 percent, and most of the unemployed were husbands and fathers, since relatively few women then worked in the labor force. Very few missionaries were going into the field at that time. We send out as many in a week now as then went during the entire year. I received my bachelor's degree and planned on somehow attending graduate school. Then the bishop came with what seemed to me a shocking suggestion. He spoke of a mission. I was called to go to England, which at that time was the most expensive mission in the world. The cost per month was about the equivalent of what would in $500 now. We discovered that my mother, who had passed away, had established a small savings account to be available for this purpose. I had a savings account in a different place, and the bank in which I had mine failed, and there was then no government insurance program to cover its failure as there is now. My father, a man of great faith and love, supplied the necessary means with all of the family cooperating at sacrifice. As I look back upon it, I see all of it as a miracle. Somehow the money was there every month. The work in that field was not easy. It was difficult and discouraging. But what a wonderful experience it was. In retrospect, I recognize that I was probably a selfish young man, man when I arrived in Britain, what a blessing it became to set aside my own selfish interests to the greater interests of the work of the Lord. I had the association of tremendous young men and women. They have become treasured friends whom I have known and loved now for more than half a century. The girl I left came to mean more to me while I was away. Next spring we shall commemorate our 50th wedding anniversary. How profoundly grateful I am for the experience of that mission. I touched a few lives who have, over the years, expressed appreciation. That has been important. But I have never been greatly concerned over the number of baptisms that I had or that other missionaries had. My satisfaction has come from the assurance that I did what the Lord wanted me to do and that I was an instrument in His hands for the accomplishment of His purposes. In the course of that experience, there became riveted into my very being a conviction and knowledge that this is in very deed the true and living work of God restored through a prophet for the blessing of all who will accept it and live its principles. There may be a few young men in this vast audience tonight who may be wondering ever so seriously whether they should go on missions. There may be a scarcity of money. There may be compelling plans for education. There may be that wonderful girl you love and feel you cannot leave. You say to yourself, the choice is mine. That is true. But before you make a decision against a mission, count your blessings. My dear friend, think of all the great and marvelous things you have, your very lives, your health, your parents, your home, the girl you love. Are they not all gifts from a generous Heavenly Father? Did you really earn them alone? independent of His blessing? No. The lives of all of us are in His hands. All the precious things that are ours have come from Him, who is the giver of every good gift. I am not suggesting that He will withdraw His blessings and leave you bereft if you do not go on a mission, but I am saying that out of a spirit of appreciation and gratitude and a sense of duty, you ought to make whatever adjustment is necessary to give a little of your time, as little as two years, consecrating your strength, your means, your talents to the work of sharing with others the gospel which is the source of so much of the good that you have. I promise that if you will do so, you will come to know that what appears today to be a sacrifice will prove instead to be the greatest investment you ever made. Let there be no hesitancy in your decision. Live worthy of a call and respond without hesitation when that call comes. Go forth with a spirit of dedication, placing yourself in the hands of the Lord to do His great work. To you younger boys, may I encourage you to save money now for a future need, a mission need. Put it in a place where it is safe, not in a speculative account where it may be endangered. Consecrate it for this great purpose and let it not be used for any other. Prepare yourselves. Attend seminary and institute prayerfully read the Book of Mormon. I hear much these days of costly youth excursions to exotic places during spring breaks and at other times. Why not stay nearer home and put the money in your future missionary accounts? Someday you will be grateful you did. The Church needs you. The Lord needs you. The world needs you. yes. 10,000 more of you. There are many out there who need exactly what you have to offer. They are not easy to find, but they will not be found unless there are those who are prepared and willing to seek them out. God bless you, each one, every one of you, that a mission may be a planned and essential part of the program of your lives. Now I wish to say a word to all who are here. It is simply a reminder of the obligation, the duty, each has to share with others the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. I was going to tell you the story of a friend who recently joined the Church. Rather than do that, I'm going to ask him to tell it himself. May I introduce Brother William Sheffield, who was baptized last November. Brother Sheffield, come here and tell us of your experience. Thank you, President Hinckley.
2: My dear brothers, following law school at Berkeley, I developed a successful private practice, particularly with international clients, including Indira Gandhi, Prime Minister of India. For years as a lawyer, I had sought a judicial appointment The day the governor of California called to say I had been appointed to the Superior Court was exhilarating and filled with visions of perhaps someday even the Supreme Court. But now, less than two years as a judge, and after just purchasing a new home, we were leaving this near idyllic life. I had heard the Lord call me to the seminary. In response, my wife and I agreed that from then on we would always trust in the Lord, agreeing to be as leaves in a stream, two leaves in His stream, obeying His call, wanting more than anything else to follow Him. But I had not always followed Christ. For many years I was uncertain who He was or how I could get close to Him. Almost daily, I silently ask myself, Is there a purpose to life? Why am I here? Where am I going? Is the meaning of life found in chasing after the most pleasurable way to get through it? Or is there something more? My Christian friends told me, All I had to do was knock, and the door will be opened unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. I began knocking. And as I knocked, the Lord answered. Like a seed growing within me, the gospel began taking over my life. I felt the Spirit calling me. I applied at the Yale Divinity School and was accepted. I resigned my judgeship. We rented our home in Southern California and headed to New Haven, Connecticut. I was in the Divinity School, though not yet a member of any church. Arriving in New Haven, we began searching for a home near the campus. However, the Lord had other ideas. Try as we did, we could not find the house we wanted near Yale. Looking back, I now know why. The Lord wanted us in a very special ward about 40 miles south of Yale, the New Canaan First Ward. Many miracles later, we found ourselves attending our first sacrament meeting in this ward. We were received as though we were expected. We had not been inside the building longer than about five minutes when we were introduced to the bishop and his counselors and invited to a dinner party that week, but my attention was first captured by the radiant spirituality of particularly the male members. I wondered, how could they live their professional lives in the fastest fast lane of them all, New York City, yet continue to radiate such a deep spirituality? What was it that caused the tears to well up in their eyes as they testified that Christ lives? and the Church is true. I needed to find out. But I didn't want particularly to be a Mormon, I told my friends. Since I was in the Divinity School, I presumed the Lord wanted me in the ministry. What would I do after graduating with an advanced degree in religion if I became a Mormon? (laughs) Yet, I wanted to be the leaf in a stream I had promised the Lord I would be when we left California. During the entire time that I was working through, struggling with, and fighting the Joseph Smith story, my friends in the ward were patient, loving, and gentle. Every time I would tell the bishop that Joseph Smith's story was more Disney than Disney, he would tell me, maybe so. But it's all true. Every time I would tell the bishop's counselor, Joseph's story can't be true, he would say to me, yes, it is. They genuinely loved me, and I them. For months I examined, cross-examined, reflected, pondered, and prayed about the Joseph Smith story and the Book of Mormon. I found the book complex, sophisticated, doctrinally profound, and beautiful. The more I studied the text, the more profound and beautiful it became. Much happened over the months. I told my friends and my wife, who was an inactive Mormon and who was beginning to feel some interest in the faith of her forebears, that I would not join the Church to please them as much as I loved them. I would only join the Church when I had a testimony, when I could say as a direct, witness that I know Joseph Smith was a prophet, that the Book of Mormon is gospel, and the Latter-day Saint Church is his Church. In September of last year, the Lord blessed me with that testimony. I now know, without any doubt or uncertainty, without even the ability to conjure up an imaginary doubt, that in the pre mortal life, the Lord selected Joseph Smith as his prophet in the latter days, that the Book of Mormon was preserved by Christ himself and delivered to Joseph Smith for translation, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints is his church. I owe a great debt to the New Canaan First Ward and to my dear wife. Their patience, Their steadfast loyalty to the restored gospel and their love for me all combine together to effect me eternally. I still am uncertain as to what the Lord has in mind for me when I graduate from the Yale Divinity School. (laughs) But I know this. My wife and I will always continue to serve God in His Church as leaves in a stream. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Brother Bill. I think the message of this good man is true. I'm convinced that there are many, many thousands of men, such as he, who with warmth and welcome can be led to the eternal truth of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. They are looking for something better than they have. They must be friendshipped. They must be fellowshipped. They must be made to feel comfortable and at home. Where they can observe in the lives of the members of the Church those virtues they wish for themselves. God bless us, my beloved brethren, to become examples such as influenced him. The world is our responsibility. We cannot evade it. I think of the words of Jacob in the Book of Mormon, who with his brother Joseph had been consecrated priests and teachers unto the people, and we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. God bless us my beloved brethren, young and old, to be faithful to the great responsibility placed upon us to share with others this most precious of all things, I humbly ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
3: Elder Neil A. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has just spoken to us. President Benson has indicated that I should be your next speaker. I never come to the priesthood session of General Conference, but what I don't think of those dynamic leaders who have stood at this pulpit before and who, with the eloquence of their voices, the depths of their hearts in expression, and from the warmth of their souls, guided us, taught us, instructed us, and helped us along the way to eternal life. As I think of those leaders, instinctively, I think of President J. Reuben Clark. I think I have not attended a general priesthood meeting when President Clark was speaking, but what he didn't plead for unity in the priesthood of God. Quoting the words of Jesus, he would inevitably say, Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. It was my opportunity to know President Clark rather well. I was his printer, and I had the privilege to visit with him on numerous occasions and to see a side of him which he rarely reflected a keen sense of humor. I was sitting in his office one day going over a manuscript when the buzzer sounded. And he said, uh-oh, there's President McKay calling another meeting. And he got up to leave. And I was just making conversation and I said, President Clark, I suppose you have many meetings every day and they're all important. He turned around and with a little impish smile on his face and a wink in his eye said, I wouldn't be too sure about that last statement and went to the meeting that he'd been summoned to attend. On one occasion, I was taking some press proofs to his home late one evening. He lived at 80 D Street here in Salt Lake City. His lovely daughter, Louise, welcomed me and took me up to the library where he sat behind that huge desk, which was just piled high with books and papers. He said, Come in, Brother Monson, and sit down. Listen to this. He was reading from the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, or the preacher. And he said these words, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He then paused and exclaimed, a treasured truth, a profound philosophy. My dear brethren, I love and I cherish that word duty. It was General Robert E. Lee of American Civil War fame who said that duty is the most glorious word in the English language. A man cannot do more, he would not wish, to do less. And from that same hour of history, Abraham Lincoln, as he said goodbye to the people of Springfield and prepared to go to Washington to assume the duties as president, said to the congregation, Let us have the faith that right makes might. And in that faith, to the end, let us do our duty and dare to do our duty as we understand it. I think of the words of Winston Churchill at the time that all of Europe was weary from World War II and the peace, the armistice, had been declared. He said, We paused and gave thanks to God for the noblest of all his blessings, the sense that we had done our duty. Like a clarion call, Our Captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaks to every one of us who holds the priesthood of God. The words thunder in my ears, Wherefore now let every man learn his duty and act in the office in which he has been appointed in all diligence. Time marches on, but duty keeps cadence with that march. Duty never dims. It never diminishes. The call of duty came to Adam. It came to Noah. It came to Abraham, to Moses, to Samuel, to David. The call of duty came to Joseph Smith. It came to each of the presidents of the Church. And now the call of duty has come to President Ezra Taft Benson. The call of duty comes sometimes to young men early in their lives, like it came to Nephi of old. May I share with you that account? I think it is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. In the third chapter of 1 Nephi, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, returned from speaking with the Lord to the tent of my father, And it came to pass that he spake unto me, saying, Behold, I have dreamed a dream, in thee which the Lord hath commanded me, that thou and thy brethren shall return to Jerusalem. For behold, Laban hath the record of the Jews, and also a genealogy of my forefathers, and they are engraven upon plates of brass. Wherefore the Lord hath commanded me, That thou and thy brothers should go unto the house of Laban, and seek the records, and bring them down hither into the wilderness. And now, behold, thy brothers murmur, saying, It is a hard thing which I have required of them. But behold, I have not required it of them, but it is a commandment of the Lord. Therefore, go, my son and thou shalt be favored of the Lord, because thou hast not murmured. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, said unto my father, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. Brethren, When the calls of the priesthood come to you and to me, perhaps to be a ward clerk, maybe the advisor to a teacher's quorum, maybe the instructor of an elder's quorum, a home teacher, I hope that we would not be among those who murmur and say this is a hard thing we've been commanded to do. Rather, I would hope that we would be like Nephi. I will go. I will do and the Lord will bless us. Someone once said that the wisdom of God oft times appears as foolishness to man. But the greatest single lesson we can learn in mortality is that when God speaks and a man obeys, that man will always be right. John Taylor, president of the Church, put us on notice. He said if we fail to magnify our calling. God will hold us accountable for those whom we might have saved had we done our duty. The call of duty came to John E. Page in the days of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Brother Joseph came to him and said, I'm calling you on a mission to Canada. John E. Page, I suppose, did the equivalent thing of murmuring. He said, "Uh, Brother Joseph, I can't go on a mission to Canada. I don't even have a coat to wear. Now, that's a pretty good excuse for not going to Canada. (laughs) But then the Prophet Joseph, unruffled, turned to him, took off his own coat, handed it to John E. Page, and said, Here, take this, and the Lord will bless you. John E. Page went on that mission to eastern Canada. He served for two years. He walked almost 5,000 miles during that time and baptized 600 people. He went and he served. One has said, Until willingness overflows obligation, men fight as conscripts rather than following the flag as patriots. Duty is never worthily performed, until it is performed by one who would gladly do more, if only he could. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and found that life was duty. I served, and, lo, duty was joy. This will be our opportunity. The call of duty, said President George Albert Smith, comes from our Heavenly Father, this patient, this quiet, this modest president of the Church. He said, Brethren, to do your duty, first find out what the Lord wants, and then, with the power and the strength of your holy priesthood, so magnify your callings among your brethren that others will be pleased to follow you." We've heard that expression, magnify your calling. Have you ever wondered what it meant? When we magnify a calling, we build it up in dignity and importance so that the light of heaven may shine through our performance to the gaze of other men. An elder magnifies his calling as an elder when he learns what his duties are and then when he performs them. As with an elder, so with a deacon, a teacher, a priest, and every office in the priesthood. Learn our duty and act in our appointed office. The call of duty came to me to serve as a young bishop back in 1950. I studied diligently the scriptures. I particularly liked reading the Apostle Paul's epistle to Timothy on what the requirements of a bishop were. I even read the general handbook. It was smaller then than it is now. (laughs) But I think I gained the greatest help from one of the general authorities who came to a priesthood leadership meeting stepped to a chalkboard and outlined the duties of a bishop. I would hope, brethren, that as leaders we would step to chalkboards and outline the duties of deacons and teachers and priests and all who hold the priesthood, the scriptures being our guide. In that outline, the first call was that the bishop is the presiding high priest and the father of the ward. Second, he is the president of the Aaronic Priesthood. Third, he is responsible to care for the poor and the needy. Fourth, he is the one who receives the tithing and is responsible for the funds and likewise the records of the ward. And fifth, he is the common judge in Israel. Those outlined duties are understood. But I received a letter from Church headquarters back at that time which was a little more challenging to me. The Korean War had just burst forth, and a letter to all bishops said, Each bishop is to supply each serviceman in his ward with a subscription paid in advance to the Improvement Era, to the Church News, and write a personal letter to each serviceman every month. I thought to myself, Do the brethren know that I have 23 servicemen in this ward of 1,080 members, a letter every month? Do they know we have no money? Fortunately, I trusted in the Lord. The money came from the high priests in the 70s. The subscriptions were arranged. But writing that personal letter to 23 servicemen every month did not really become a drudgery. It became a joy and a blessing for me. I still have some of the copies of those letters and the responses which came from them. I still get a little teary-eyed when I read of a soldier's pledge to do his duty, a sailor's determination to keep faith with his family. One night, as I had completed writing the 23 letters, I handed them to the young lady who would affix the postage stamps and handle the maintenance of the addresses. She turned to me as she looked at one envelope and said, Bishop, don't you ever get discouraged? I said, no, I don't. Why? She said, here is another letter to Thaddeus Bryson Jr. This is the 17th consecutive monthly letter that you've sent to him without a reply. I said, well. Send it along. Maybe it will work." And it did. I received a reply to that letter. I have it here with me tonight, dated December 25, 1953. It was postmarked APO San Francisco. He was serving on a remote island in the Pacific, Christmas, homesick, missing family and friends. He had been among the less active when he went in the service. But he began his letter this way. Dear Bishop, I ain't much at writing letters. I could have told him that 17 months sooner. (laughs) But he went on to say that he appreciated the magazines, the newspaper, that he had been ordained a priest by his servicemen's coordinator. And then he said, most of all, I appreciate your letters. I thought of the couplet. Do your duty, that is best. Leave unto the Lord the rest. Years later, I was attending a conference at the Cottonwood Stake in Salt Lake City when Elder James Faust was presiding there. The theme was taking care of our servicemen. The Vietnam War was in full bloom. I spoke of this experience, and after the meeting, a young man came forward and said, Bishop, do you remember me? I said, My goodness, Brother Bryson, how are you? I'm fine, he said. I'm in the Elder's Corps and Presidency of my ward. And by the way, Bishop, thank you, thank you, thank you for the letters. I thought of the poem, Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. And then he pointed out a little spot and said, Here, tend that for me. Oh, no, not that, why, no one would ever see. Not that little spot for me. The word he spoke, it was not stern. He answered me tenderly, Ah, little one, search that heart of thine. Art thou working for them or for me? Nazareth was a little place, and so was Galilee. Brethren. As we perform our duty, as we walk hopefully in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth, I would plead that we would listen for the sound of sandaled feet, that we would reach out for the carpenter's hand, that we might know him. He may come to us as one unknown. As of old, by the lakeside, he came to those men who knew him not. He speaks the same words, Follow thou me, and sets us to the tasks, even the duties, which He has for us to perform in our time. He commands, and to those who obey, whether they be wise or simple, He shall reveal Himself in the struggles and the trials and the sufferings which they shall pass through in His fellowship and in their own experience. They shall come to know him. When the call of duty came to our elder brother, Jesus Christ the Lord, he answered, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. With all my heart tonight, I would ask that the priesthood of this Church follow the example of our Lord. Father. Thy will be done, and thine be the glory forever. That we might do so would be my earnest plea, my humble prayer, and I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior. Amen. My brethren,
4: what if in tomorrow's newspapers and on television, scholars excitedly announced that dozens of pages of startling and significant writings, including those of Enoch, Abraham, and Moses, had been found? These startling writings inform us, among many other important things, how the Lord tutored Moses, told him of other worlds, and then in regal response told Moses why God created and peopled this planet. These writings indicate that Abraham and others were chosen in the premortal councils just like Jeremiah long before they were born. Among this distinguished group was the 13th president-to-be of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, President Ezra Taft Benson. In fact, we learn from these records that all faithful men of the priesthood were called and prepared from the foundation of the world Even though, by secular criteria, such are the weak things of the world. This new information about Enoch totals 18 times what is in the Bible. Further, we learn that a human utopia was actually once achieved, as we receive a portrait of a special people, the city of Enoch. These tremendous discoveries likewise show us that the gospel of Jesus Christ was taught and its ordinances administered in Adam's time— in the dawn of human history. Furthermore, Adam gathered his righteous posterity together three years before his death. He instructed them, he blessed them, and prophesied concerning the future. The Lord even appeared at this very special family gathering. Given such sobering and liberating discoveries, would not we and many others be deeply impressed and very attentive? would there not be a stir much, much larger than that which has accompanied the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls or other ancient writings? The secular world, of course, would pay only passing heed and would quickly return to the pressing cares of the world. As you already know, brethren, these finds are but a portion of the abundant restoration reflecting the remarkable ministry of the Prophet Joseph Smith through whom there was such an outpouring— Traversing these truths requires more than a casual stroll up sloping foothills, taking us instead up the breathtaking ridges of reality to an Everest of understanding, and on a clear day we can see forever. The Bible in our present format totals just under 1,600 printed pages from multiple authors, To these have been added nearly 900 other printed pages of scripture through the Prophet Joseph Smith, more than from all the writings of Moses, Paul, Luke, and Mormon combined as these are available today, illustrating the quantitative significance of what has come to us through the Restoration. Cited in these brief remarks are only a few verses, the equivalent of only three or four printed pages in our current scriptures but what enormous qualitative significance is represented. Before the Restoration, the void was very real. Prior to meeting Joseph Smith, Brigham Young said he would have crawled around the earth on his hands and knees to meet someone like Moses who could tell him anything about God and heaven. Through Joseph Smith, we have additional pages from Moses about God and heaven. We have only to reach to the bookshelf or go to priesthood meeting. Perhaps the way is almost too easy and too simple. We might be more appreciative if on hands and knees. Only by searching the scriptures, not using them occasionally as a quote book, can we begin to understand the implications as well as the declarations of the gospel. For instance, three verses from Alma, advising of premortal preparations and calls, officially broke centuries of silence about mankind's premortal existence. In 1833, further confirmation came. Not only was Jesus in the beginning with God, but man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. We can thus sing, O my Father, with real intent, and assurances of real belonging. In 1832, Jesus, who was seen on this rapturous occasion, was accompanied by a voice bearing record that Jesus created this and other worlds, whose inhabitants are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Brethren, how can we truly understand who we are unless we know who we were and what we have the power to become? How can there be real identity without real history? How can one understand his tiny individual plot without knowing even a little about Father's grand galactic plans? In 1833, information also came indicating Jesus grew from grace to grace until He received a fullness. This is so helpful, especially in view of how the Father and the Son have encouraged us afresh to become more like them by developing the requisite qualities in our lives. What Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount about striving for this grand goal was said in earnest. Moreover, having been advised that we are to become childlike, we are firmly and specifically told of the attributes needed. In so striving, each man of the priesthood will love his wife and bless his children. He will be a true patriarch having the authority of example as well as the authority of the holy priesthood. We learn from terse verses that we are not hapless, helpless victims of original sin. We are responsible for our own actual and individual sins, but not Adam's, whom the Lord forgave long, long ago. In fact, because Adam fell, we are, and men are, that they might have joy. Commanded to write of these truths, Moses was also told that many of the things he would write would later be taken away. Nevertheless, these would be had again among the children of men in the last days. My brethren, these truths are had again. We possess these precious truths. Now they must come to possess us. We are to search them, to ponder them, to feel them, and to live by them. They are not just theological niceties and philosophical footnotes. We need to ponder their implications as well as believe in their declarations regarding daily and eternal life. One cannot have adequate faith in a Christ whom he does not adequately know, who is a stranger far from the thoughts and intents of his heart. Instead, by laying aside every weight of the world, and the sins which so easily beset us. By looking unto Jesus and by feasting upon His words, we will be able to move forward with intellectual and spiritual vigor. Otherwise, as Paul said, we can become wearied and faint in our minds. When we understand what was revealed to Adam, my plan of salvation unto all men, then these doctrines are keenly relevant for tomorrow's trial, Tuesday's temptation, or next month's surge of self-pity. After all, chastening and the trial of our faith and our patience are part of the plan. It is all so wondrously Christ-centered, whether in the structure of the atom or the galaxies or in the truths about temples and families. For those who have eyes to see, All things from the beginning of the world bear record of God. They are designed to point us to Christ, typifying Him so that we might follow Him, have faith in Him, and keep His commandments. If sought by faith, these doctrines of the radiant restoration enclose us in divine purpose during our sojourn in this far country. Like the prodigal son who came to himself, We thus receive needed perspective and direction as we also begin to arise and to go to our Father. The initial labor we have to perform with regard to these doctrines is only to look, firmly averting our gaze from the comparative slums of the secular world with its grabbiness and grubbiness. The gospel, in fact, gives us glimpses of a far horizon. Revealing a glow from the lights of the city of God. It is a place of happy countenances where justice and mercy, as well as righteousness and truth, are constant companions. Herein gentleness and generosity prevail, and without compulsory means. Coarseness and selfishness are unknown, belonging to a previous and primitive place. Here... Envy would be a sore embarrassment. Neighbors are esteemed as self. This city, where all the residents keep the First and Second Great Commandments, is a community of striking individuals who are of one heart and of one mind. We will not be strangers in the city of God. We were there before. When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy, at the prospects of this stern but necessary mortal existence. What we sang then was doubtless an anthem of praise far greater than the hallelujah chorus, more glorious than Moses and Israel's song after crossing the Red Sea. Wonder is added to wonder as temples and scriptures tell us of still other worlds, of a universe drenched in divine design, with as it were, spiritual cousins in the cosmos. When we see things as they really were, really are, and really will be, dispensations are merely seasons. New friendships are but relationships resume. And prophets sent forth on their errands from the Lord reflect associations which arc across the ages as they later rendezvous on mountaintops and hills, in woods, fields, groves, and even jails. We are not now ready for all the things the Lord has prepared in the city of God for them that love Him. Our present eyes are unready for things which they have not yet seen, and our ears unready for the transcending sounds and music of that city. The trek will be proving and trying— Faith, patience, and obedience are essential, but he who completes the journey successfully will be immeasurably added upon, and he who does not will have subtracted from the sum of his possibilities. When we arrive home, we shall be weary and bruised, but at last our aching homesickness will cease. Meanwhile. Our mortal homecomings are but faint foreshadowings of that homecoming. Brethren, these plain and precious doctrines restored in our time through the Prophet Joseph Smith are pulsating with perspective and are so light-intensive like radioactive materials they must be handled with great care. To life's great questions about identity and meaning come the Restoration's resounding answers. Accompanying these yes-yeses, are the necessary no-nos. These restored truths are not mysterious but wondrous. These truths do not represent the gossip of the galaxies, but instead the universe's simple, stunning secrets, such as those God shared with Enoch, Abraham, Moses, and Joseph Smith, a few of which have been noted. Nothing could be more relevant, more resplendent, more true Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. We are Joseph's of spiritual heirs, called ages and ages ago, in the there and then, for duties which await us here and now. Men and young men of the priesthood, let us be about those duties as doers and messengers. The gospel message is worthy of work performed by a man like Ether, from the morning even until the going down of the sun. This work is worthy of sacrifice and courage like that of Abinadi. He suffered death by fire, saying, After I finish my message, then it matters not. Doers, said Jesus, will know that these doctrines are of God. Therefore do not be surprised when non-doers scoff. Do not be surprised either if these doctrines unsettle some. Such was the case when the ancient apostles filled Jerusalem with their doctrines, and when Jesus focused his hearers on doctrines, they were astonished at his doctrines. The only cure for the doctrinal illiteracy of those who murmur will be to learn doctrine. Brethren, given the grandness of the Restoration, my heart is brim with joy. I apologize for my inability to speak of Jesus as he deserves being able to speak only the smallest part which I feel. Yet, even so, there is music in my soul today, a carol to my King, and Jesus, listening, can hear the songs I cannot sing. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. The great
5: lessons of the scriptures teach us over and over again how foolish it is for mankind to desert the ways of the Lord and rely on the arm of flesh. One of the certainties of life is that mankind usually individually and collectively will cycle through their mortal experience with periods of good and difficult times. How many of our family histories contain a paragraph similar to this? Economically, our family had its ups and downs. Like many, we did well during the 1920s. My father started making lots of money in real estate, in addition to his other businesses. For a few years, we were actually wealthy. But then the Depression came. No one who has ever lived through it can ever forget. My father lost all his money, and we almost lost our house. I remember asking my sister, who was just a couple of years older, whether we would have to move out and how we could find somewhere else to live. The anxiety I felt about the future is still vivid in my mind. Bad times are indelible. They stay with you forever. But as surely as we can rely on change being part of life, there is also the absolute assurance that we are children of an eternal Father in heaven. And as the supreme example of a kind and loving Father, He has charted a well-defined course for his children to follow, the destination of which is the blessing of returning to his presence. He has marked the path with true principles which will stand the test of time. In this session of General Conference this afternoon, we have been reviewing welfare principles as they have been revealed to us for our application over the last 50 years. There is one additional principle, so basic to this whole welfare plan, which I would like to discuss with you this afternoon. It is the law of the fast. I always marvel as I study the principles the Lord has designed for us to follow, how simple they are in concept how easy they are to administer, and how compliance always brings forth additional blessings. The law of the fast is basic in the Church. Isaiah declared, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? Like many other biblical practices, It was restored by the Lord in our day through the prophet Joseph Smith. The law of the fast has three great purposes. First, it provides assistance to the needy through the contributions of fast offerings, consisting of the values of meals from which we abstain. Second, the fast is beneficial to us physically. And third, It is to increase humility and spirituality on the part of each individual. An important reason for fasting is to contribute the amount saved from the meals, not eaten, to care for the poor and the needy. One of the strongest admonitions of the Lord, the Lord has given to his children on earth, is that we have an obligation and responsibility of caring for those in need. It was King Benjamin who said in his great address, And now for the sake of these things which I have spoken unto you, that is, for the sake of retaining remission from your sins from day to day, that ye may walk guiltless before God, I would that ye should impart your substance to the poor every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. Do we need to be reminded that included in our baptismal covenant is our pledge to bear one another's burdens? that they may be liked to mourn for those that mourn and to comfort those who need comfort. The longer I live, the more impressed I am with the Lord's system of caring for the poor and needy. Surely no man could think of such a simple yet profound way of satisfying human needs to grow spiritually and temporally through periodic fasting, and then donating the amount saved from refraining from partaking of those meals to the bishop to be used to administer to the needs of the poor, the ill, the downtrodden, who need help and support to make their way through life. It was President Clark who said, The fundamental principle of all Church relief work is that it must be carried on by fast offerings and other volunteer donations and contributions. This is the order established by the Lord. Tithing is not primarily designed for this purpose and must not be used except in the last extremity. Through religious history, we have found how the Lord blesses the people when they reach out and care for the poor and the needy. In the days of Hezekiah, we read this in the scriptures, And concerning the children of Israel and Judah, they also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep, and the tithe of holy things, which were consecrated unto the Lord their God, and laid them by heaps. And when Hezekiah and the princes came and they saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and the people of Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned with the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. The answer was, since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we have had enough food and have left plenty For the Lord has blessed his people, and that which is left is a great store." We have said a lot today about President Romney and what he has declared about the welfare program. Could I add just another? I am thoroughly in harmony with what the bishop said about our need to contribute liberally to fast offerings and to every other fund that the Church officials call upon us to contribute, to. I am a firm believer that you cannot give to the Church and to build up the kingdom of God and become any poorer financially. I remember a long time ago, over 50 years, when Brother Ballard laid his hands on my head and set me apart to go on a mission. He said in that prayer, a blessing that a person could not give a crust to the Lord without receiving a loaf in return. That has been my experience. If the members of the Church would double their fast-offering contributions, the spirituality in the Church would double. We need to keep that in mind and be liberal in our contributions with all of these promises of the Lord over the expanse of man's sojourn on the earth. How shocking it is to find that sometimes it is necessary to use tithing funds of the Church to make up deficits in our fast-offering contributions. Oh, where is our faith? Oh, how we deprive ourselves of the blessings of the Lord by not being generous in our fast offering contributions. Let us have the faith to bind the Lord to the blessings for this people, because we are following His order to care for the poor and the needy among us by being generous in our fast offering contributions. Fasting is also beneficial to us physically, Some time ago I read an article in Science News, written by Charles L. Goodrich, which stated that the advantage of modern eating habits extended far beyond the cosmetic. Numerous animal studies have demonstrated that caloric restriction early in life leads leads to an increased lifespan and reduces the risk of certain diseases. There is also evidence of health-promoting effects of periodic fasting— Some experiments have shown that periodic fasting no longer promotes a longer life, but encourages a more vigorous activity later in life. Fast offering is also one of the finest ways of developing our own discipline and self-control. Plato said, the first and the best victory is to conquer self. To be conquered by self is, of all things, the most shameful and vile. Fasting helps to teach us to have the ability of self-mastery. It helps us to gain the discipline we need to gain control over ourselves. Again, we can conclude, if we are wise in following the Lord's law of fasting, we, too, will receive benefits physically. Finally, let us examine the humility and spiritual strength derived from fasting. The Savior certainly recognized this principle, for after his baptism, we find the scripture recording. And Jesus, being filled with the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil used all his cunning ways to tempt the Savior to abandon his mission. To this the Savior responded, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And when the devil had ended all of his temptations, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the regions round about. Fasting had blessed him with the power of the Spirit. There is also an account in the Book of Mormon where Alma was traveling southward on his way to Manti. He was astonished to come across his friends, the sons of Messiah, journeying towards the land of Zarahemla. It was a joyous meeting as they exchanged accounts of their missionary journey. Alma was delighted to see how the sons of Messiah had waxed strong in a knowledge of the truth. The scripture records, But this is not all, for they had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with the power and authority of God and they had been teaching the word of God for the space of fourteen years among the Lamanites, having had much success in bringing the knowledge of the truth, yea, by the power of the words, many were brought before the altar of God to call upon His name and confess their sins before Him. These are only two examples of the many we can find in the scriptures where fasting and prayer for a purpose brings forth special spiritual power. This same blessing is available to each of us if we will only take advantage of it. I would like to add my testimony this afternoon to the others who have given witness to the blessings of those who have given to and receive from this great, inspired welfare services program over the last 50 years. My father was the bishop of our ward at the time of its announcement to the church in April Conference of 1936. The world was struggling in a Great Depression, so many of the fathers of our ward were unemployed. In those days, a dime for admission to a school activity would eliminate so many of my friends from attending because their parents could not afford even this small amount for their children's enjoyment. Because of my father's calling as a bishop, I was able to gain an appreciation for the welfare program from its very beginnings as I watched him administer to the needs of the poor in his ward with great love and tenderness. How often I raced home from school, anticipating a planned activity. As I would round the corner of our home, there I would see sacks of flour, sugar, and other commodities. My heart would fall as I knew it would be another evening out with Father as he delivered these commodities to those in need. The planned activity would have to be canceled for that evening. When he returned home, I was always enlisted to help him put the commodities in the car and travel with him to make the deliveries. Sometimes I would grumble under my breath for having been so put upon. But then I would have the remarkable experience of watching the light come back into the eyes of a depressed family as food was brought into their home. I always returned home from these experiences with an exhilarated feeling of watching the Church in action as it was caring for its poor and its needy through fast offerings and good, kind priesthood leaders. May the Lord continue to bless us with the faith to follow the inspired leadership He has provided for us here on earth, that we may fulfill our obligations and responsibilities and be blessed by His hand both spiritually and temporally, as we follow His plan, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.